You know success when you see it. Or you think you do. The people in the spotlight. But what about those small business masterminds who succeed at making their money work harder? They do that by having a business bank account with QuickBooks Money, which now earns 5% annual percentage yield. Making your money work as hard as you do? That's how you business differently. Learn more about QuickBooks Money at quickbooks.com slash 5APY. Banking services provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Only funds and envelopes earn APY. APY can change at any time. The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at QatarEconomicForum.com. Hello and welcome to What You Missed This Week. I'm Joe Weisenthal. This is the podcast that has the best and most interesting interviews from the Daily Market Close Show that I co-anchor with Scarlett Fu, Caroline Hyde, and Romaine Bostic on Bloomberg TV. It's called What You Miss. Our aim is to take you beyond the headlines and bring you unique perspectives on the week's top stories and, well, those that you may have just missed. It's the perfect way to kick off your weekend. Howard Schultz called it the greatest threat domestically to the country as the U.S.'s annual budget deficit creeps back towards $1 trillion. The former Starbucks CEO, who is exploring a White House bid, has put focus on the national debt. But two major economists aren't so convinced. Larry Summers and Jason Furman took issue with the arguments in a new piece for foreign affairs titled, Who's Afraid of Budget Deficits? How Washington Should End Its Debt Obsession. They wrote that, quote, politicians and policymakers should focus on urgent social problems, not deficits. Jason came on to discuss the piece, and we started by asking him how much of an influence he thought the growing movement of people who call themselves modern monetary theorists were having on the debate. You know, I think there's been a major change in the economy, and that's changed the way a lot of people and a lot of organizations think about the debt. You know, a place like the International Monetary Fund, which for decades pushed fiscal consolidation, pushed austerity, you know, is now pretty much off that and talking about how that can actually hurt economies. Um, and so a lot of this just depends on, on where you are economically. That's changed. So our views on the deficit should change with it. Is that going to be, but what is it going to sort of underpin uh, an actual change in that view and particularly uh, put, put that into action, particularly when you consider that sort of the current interest rate cycle that we've been on over the past couple of decades uh, might not necessarily be the same cycle that we're on in the next couple of decades going forward? Right. You know, when the first President Bush and President Clinton were cutting the deficit, the real interest rate was about 4%. Businesses were not investing a lot. It was really important to get the deficit down, get interest rates down, and make it so businesses could afford to invest more. There's no businesses right now that aren't investing because they can't afford the cost of capital because borrowing costs are too high. We don't need a big deficit reduction program to reduce interest rates that already adjusted for inflation are just a tiny bit above zero. So we're just in a very different position right now, and interest rates are the best measure of how different that position is. You've talked about in your piece in particular large deficits arising from deriving more from falling revenues, really, than actual rising in spending. Jason, I want to get your take on how, therefore, we can more efficiently bring in revenues. Are any of the new 
speaks, speeches coming out from presidential hopefuls on the way to tax people ringing good chimes in your ears or not? Yeah. Um, first of all, you made an important or point, or at least you quoted a point I made. I don't know if you endorsed it. Um, that if we hadn't had the tax cuts of the last couple decades, we'd actually have a budget surplus right now, um, not a budget deficit. I think we will need more revenue over time. I think we can certainly afford to have higher rates. I'd love to focus on improving the tax base. On the corporate side, we could have expensing for businesses, which is a good thing for them, together with those higher rates. On the individual side, we could close a lot of the loopholes, a lot of the tax benefits high-income households get as the first way of getting money. You know, and then you know, if that doesn't raise enough, um, raise rates. But you know, I think all of this is the right direction to be talking about. Jason, the exploding deficit we've seen in recent years hasn't pushed interest rates higher. Therefore, what's the evidence that the diminished deficits under the first George W. Bush and under President Clinton can uh, take credit for the lower interest rates that they saw? After all, interest rates have been declining since the early 1980s. It looks on a chart like a just continuation of the trend. If the link is broken now, how do we know that that relationship held in the past? Look, it may not have held in the past, so maybe this point was true uh, 25 years ago. Um, But there have been a set of studies about the impact of deficits on interest rates, both in the United States um, and elsewhere. They've been quite careful, and they find that a 1% of GDP deficit raises interest rates by about 25 basis points. I think it's reasonable to think something like that. Um, And if you think something like that, you know, ask yourself, would we be better off right now if interest rates were one, you know, one and a half points lower? Um, I think in some ways that would be, you know, a quite scary prospect when you think about what monetary policy would be like in a world with much lower interest rates, even lower than we have now. Jason, is there any concern that if we were to sort of embark down this path, that it could sort of put in jeopardy the status of the dollar and particularly the strength of the dollar, should the Treasury continue to increase its debt sales? Well, Larry and I argue we need a limiting principle. This isn't, uh, you know, anything goes, you can do whatever you want, free lunch type of situation. Um, We argue you should pay for things. That would actually be a change from the tax cuts that we did a year and a half ago. It would constrain the ambition of some of the Democratic plans that I think probably would be hard to pay for. Um, It does say, though, you know, the existing deficit, the existing debt, they're going to keep trending up gradually. We're just not going to add a whole lot to it that would make it increase even faster. What is the limiting principle? You know, our limiting principle is PAYGO. You know, I don't know if that would work forever. We'd have to check back five years from now where the deficit and debt are, where interest rates are. But I think for at least right now, not actively digging the hole any deeper, I think would be more than fine, would in some ways be an improvement on what we've seen lately, and would let us focus on other issues like you know, employment, climate change, health care, you know, education, training, and the like. This week, we witnessed a first, a Twitter fight between former Goldman CEO Lloyd Blankfein and Vermont Senator Bernie Sanders. The internet squabble broke out after Blankfein took to Twitter for the first time in almost seven months to critique a recent op-ed by the senator as well as Senate Democratic Minority Leader Chuck Schumer. Their piece in the New York Times announced a bill that would put a legislative limit on corporate stock buybacks, and Blankfein was not having it. First, we talked with Cullen Roach, founder of Orcam Financial Group, who is against the idea of putting restrictions on buybacks, and he told us why he thinks the talk about buybacks is oversimplified. 
this should generate a ton of hate mail for me, so I appreciate that. <laughs> um, you know, I, uh, I I think that people kind of oversimplify all of this, and uh, if firms were basically barred from buying back shares, I think they would just retain more of their profits. They'd figure out other ways. Maybe they'd pay more dividends, or they or they would just sit on the money, which would, uh, you know, that's really the root of, I think, what people are trying to criticize, is that they're basically saying corporations are making too much profit, and that they're, they're retaining this, and they're not distributing it equally into the economy. And so... Criticizing buybacks or even dividends is sort of a—it's sort of an indirect or inefficient way of actually critiquing what these people want to critique. And so, it, in a way, it sort of puts the cart behind the before the horse by critiquing what they're doing with the capital rather than critiquing the fact that they really think firms are basically retaining too much profit. Yeah, Cullen, I mean, there are some pretty major flaws in the proposal that Schumer and Sanders put out there. But there have been some legitimate criticisms, uh, especially over the last couple of years, that some of the stock buybacks that have been done, particularly those uh, that were financed by by debt, uh, aren't necessarily the best uses of that capital. How do you respond to that? Yeah, I think there I mean, there are some fair critiques of of buybacks and mainly the employee-based compensation ones that are just used to offset uh, stock issuance. And then some of these deals that are done based on debt, I think those are fair critiques. But that's, in general, those are, are not the majority of the way that these buybacks are being implemented. And so I think it's a little bit of a, of a sloppy generalization made by the, by the critics. Do you see any way to actually incentivize them to raise wages or invest in R&D? Well, no, I mean, the the bottom line is that the main reason firms are buying back shares is because those are low-risk ways of returning capital and paying higher wages and investing in things like R&D. Those are tough decisions. They, you know, I think people are a little bit unfair in the way they critique this because they don't understand exactly how difficult those decisions are. And firms are buying back shares because those are just very low-risk ways of, of returning capital to uh, shareholders. And so there are... Yeah. There are, I mean, legislators have ways of, of fighting problems that are more direct. Then we got the other side of the debate. Nell Abernathy, vice president of research and policy at the Roosevelt Institute, a left-wing think tank, came on to make the case for curbing buybacks. We asked her if this plan would actually address income inequality the way the senators hoped it would. And I think the the answer is it's been about 40 or 50 years of policy changes that have led us to the current dysfunctional, high profit, but low wage, low investment economy. And it's going to take a lot of policy changes to get us back to a more functional economy. This bill that they're proposing takes aim at the imbalance of power within firms, which is a key Mm. part of the problem. And it does reduce the ability to funnel money out of the firm for less productive enterprises. But we also absolutely need to increase countervailing power within firms, increasing labor power, and also increase countervailing power outside firms, increase competition. I believe firms would be investing more, and the evidence supports this, if they actually had to compete, as you mentioned, for workers or consumers. But there's so much market power in the economy that they're able to instead funnel money to shareholders. And so what policy do you think will realistically get through? Is there any hope for this particular bill now? Will we see anything come into action? 
In terms of the next two years and the current legislature, I can't speak to uh, the specific political dynamics, but I would be very surprised if anyone expected much of anything to get through. And, and this bill would not be one I would imagine would be at the top of the list. I think that in a new administration that you would see a, a whole range of bills and packages that together would look to rebalance power within the firm. And again, that includes things that would shift the idea of maximizing shareholder value to a broader stakeholder approach and increase the power of workers to demand more, increase the power of competitors to actually compete, reduce the returns for extreme uh, CEO salaries that encourage the kind of market manipulation aspect of shareholder buybacks that we haven't actually talked about. And, and that it would need to include all of those different pieces. Now, do you think that there's any way to address some of those topics outside of the legislative and regulatory framework? I mean, are there just some sort of natural market forces that would actually push us in that direction? I think that in terms of natural market forces, one piece would be uh, making having a larger labor union presence, which in some ways is outside a legislative Route, but I think we've done so much to decimate the power of organizing that that's hard. I think also competition. It's not necessarily saying we need the government to demand we can't do this, but we do need government public action to enhance competition in our markets that would actually then force firms to invest to innovate or compete in product markets. Now, I want to ask a question that's a little bit broader than buybacks, but something people are talking about a lot, which is why it is that the Democratic Party or leaders in the Democratic Party are feeling so confident these days about proposing more progressive or left-wing economic ideas, whether it's much more aggressive uh, graduated taxation or wealth taxes or this. I mean, Senator Schumer uh, writing an op-ed with Bernie Sanders, not something you would have uh, expected a few years ago. What do you think it is about this moment in politics where they feel comfortable uh, proposing more radical ideas? I think that what we've seen is a lot of the economic evidence and the policy elite has caught up with where a lot of average people have been for a long time. Since the financial crisis, I think it's been clear that the economy has not been working for average Americans. And a lot of the assumptions that have guided our policymaking for the past 40 to 50 years, that shareholders would allocate capital effectively, that tax cuts would lead to more investment and grow the economy, that uh, workers would benefit when the corporation did well. We've seen that these assumptions are just have nothing to do with the reality of the average person living today. So it's a lot easier for a politician to say, oh, this is completely made up. Whereas for, for decades, you've had economists, and like, like many of my um, peers, say, if you, if you were to introduce this regulation, if you didn't unleash market forces, you're going to kill the economy. You know success when you see it. Or you think you do. The people in the spotlight. Athletes, actors, artists. But what about the people behind the scenes? You know, the ones who make it all happen. The lighting engineers, the sideline photographers, the caterers, they're small business masterminds. And if there's one thing they have in common, it's making their money work harder. 
That's why they have a business bank account with QuickBooks Money, where they are now earning a generous 5% annual percentage yield. Yes, 5% APY. Making your money work as hard as you do? That's how you business differently. Learn more about QuickBooks Money at quickbooks.com slash 5APY. Banking services provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Only funds and envelopes earn APY. APY can change at any time. Then we got to the unbelievable story from the crypto space. The fallout over the death of a crypto exchange founder has been raising questions about the regulation of digital assets. When Gerald Cotton, CEO of cryptocurrency exchange Quadriga CX, died in December last year, the keys to the digital wallets of the exchange's customers were lost. Now hundreds of millions of dollars remain stranded and people have been brought in to try to decrypt the keys. So we spoke with Peter Van Velkenberg, director of research at Coin Center, about the implications. We asked Peter, how can people who want to get into crypto be confident that this isn't going to happen to their preferred exchange? This is a strange one and an unfortunate one uh, for multiple reasons. But what it really uh, illustrates is that Bitcoin is just like cash and cash in your wallet. You lose your wallet. The cash is gone. Bitcoin's controlled by keys. You have your keys on your phone or in this case, it was probably a laptop that was encrypted. If you can't open up that laptop anymore, sign in anymore. If you lose that laptop, the Bitcoin's gone. And that's scary, but that's also a feature. It's hard to say and hard to make people understand, but sometimes we want money that works like cash and we want it to work in the digital world, say for transactions that don't need to have a lot of intermediaries in between, where you'd just like to have something that'd be like a face-to-face transaction with dollars. So it's... It's a necessary evil. It's an unfortunate event. Um, what can I say? Well, Peter, you call it a feature, but is, does that feature at some point become an impediment to cryptocurrency, I guess, becoming adopted more by, I guess, the mainstream, you know, uh, financial, uh, you know, market or labyrinth or whatever you want to call it, uh, if you don't have any sort of protections that if you lose something, you'll get it back? See, I don't think it is an impediment because I think there are more mature companies out there that do a better job with security. There should never be a single point of failure in these systems. There should be multiple backup keys. There should be different control persons at a company that's securing Bitcoin for other people. And there should be processes in place to deal with things like death. Mm. And you really don't even need to hold your Bitcoin at an exchange or at a custodian. You could hold it yourself and you could have that kind of backup key relationship. So you think like, okay, well, what if I drop my toy, my phone in my toilet, which is something I've done before, what's going to happen to my Bitcoin? Well, I know I've got a backup that I gave to, say, my lawyer or to someone I trust, maybe a spouse. You can even use multiple keys to set voting rules for your funds so that a lawyer and your spouse would have to agree to move funds if your keys were ever to be lost. There are all kinds of amazing controls you can have when money is programmatic and can move peer to peer, which is how Bitcoin works. So I think that you know, we're, we're suffering growing pains still. Mm. God knows Mt. Gox was a growing pain years ago. This is another growing pain. But fundamentally, this technology is better than the traditional means of moving money around the world. And yeah. I'll also say that from a regulatory standpoint, there are protections in place. We already have laws in place that make it a requirement that you're going to get licensed if you're going to run mm. a Bitcoin exchange and hold a lot of Bitcoin for other people. Now, I'm not sure if those laws have done a good job protecting protecting people in this situation. I don't know that much about the uh, state of regulation in Canada, but I will say that we do have regulation in place here in the U.S. that 
should prevent some of these types of uh, unfortunate events from happening. So, Peter, for those who are currently using an exchange, looking at using an exchange or indeed investing in some way, what key just points of due diligence should they do to ensure that the person hasn't put their their private keys into cold storage in some way? They They know that they've got the protection in place. So a few things. Number one, if you are not going to be actively trading, maybe you shouldn't use an exchange at all. There are great providers who just do custody, and they focus on that as part of their business model. And sometimes these are referred to as multi-sig providers, and they set up those divided key relationships. So if you're not interested in day trading, which honestly most people shouldn't be, you just want to use it and enjoy it and try it as a technology, you probably don't want to trust your Bitcoin with a big exchange. But then if you do want to do a lot of day-to-day trading, there are some more heavyweight exchanges out there that have really good practices in place. And you mentioned them. These are things like cold storage, but also multiple control persons that have keys and processes in place if any of those control persons disappear. Um, so, so those are the things to look for. And also look for one that's based in the U.S. and is regulated, that has, say, a bit license or is a money transmitter under the state that you live, uh, has that money transmission license. This week, there was a call to climate change arms on Capitol Hill. On Thursday, freshman Democratic Congresswoman Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez and Democratic Senator Ed Markey have unveiled their Green New Deal. The policy idea has already gained traction among Democratic 2020 hopefuls, despite most people not really knowing the specifics. Now that the blueprint is out, we spoke with Stephanie Kelton, a professor at Stony Brook University, who formerly served as the chief economist on the Senate Budget Committee and as an economic advisor to Bernie Sanders' presidential campaign in 2016. We started by asking Stephanie if paying for this plan would require cutbacks, rationing, and other changes to everyday life. What they're laying out here is a program to build a cleaner, safer, more prosperous America. So this isn't an exercise in belt tightening and everybody's got to make these significant cutbacks for the good of fighting the war. But I would say that they did worry about how to pay for World War II. In fact, Keynes wrote a really famous little booklet at the time and actually called it How to Pay for the War. So there were people that were thinking carefully and and worrying about how to pay for the war. But back then, the question was, how do we transform the economy away from one that's oriented around producing for consumer goods toward one that's oriented around producing for the war? And the whole point of the project was to phase in in this new economy, to transition to this new economy in ways that wouldn't create an inflation problem. And so I think that's really the kind of sensitivity that we have to approach the Green New Deal with. Uh, How do you sell this, though? I mean, the New Deal, the original New Deal that FDR did, I mean, that was took a salesmanship that was on a gargantuan level, and he still came up short on a lot of his proposals. How does someone like uh, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, a freshman uh, congresswoman, uh, manage to sort of musher the salesmanship to move this forward? Well, look, 94% of Democrats are already supportive of a Green New Deal. That's what the polls show. 64% of Republicans already support a Green New Deal. So the question maybe we should be asking is, how do we bring members of Congress to where the general public already is? You do a wonderful Twitter 
Q&A where you outline all, preempt all the questions and give all your answers as to how we could indeed pay for this deal. I'm interested in, uh, to Romain's point, the feasibility of it when you've got in the Senate at the moment an unlikely route to passage. What could get through? Because is this more a flag in splitting a stake in the ground, what the absolute utopia might be, but where might the compromise be? So I don't I wouldn't start by asking where the compromise will be. I would start by saying we know what the goal needs to be. We know what the end game is. We know from the scientists who drafted the intergovernmental panel uh, report on climate change. We know from this administration's own White House. We know that we have 12 years. We know the clock is ticking. And so the question is, how do we build more support in both the House and the Senate? Right now, you've got nine senators co-sponsoring this resolution of, uh, uh, for a Green New Deal. You've got 64 House members, last time I checked, who had signed on. So the question is going to be, how do we build that groundswell of support at, that exists already in the population? How do we translate that upward to our elected officials and create the sense of urgency that's needed to get where we need to be in 12 years' time? In the uh, outline for the Green New Deal, uh, there's a jobs guarantee, which you and other advocates of modern monetary theory support. But why does it make sense to pair the two ideas? If climate change is this impending catastrophe for the entire world, does it risk uh, making it more difficult to fight that if we're trying to add on these other sort of efforts to stabilize and make the economy more fair? I don't think so at all. In fact, the job guarantee also is extremely popular with both Republicans, independents, and Democrats. And I think the idea here, Joe, is 12 years. We have such a short time frame that it really is an all-hands-on-deck sort of thing. And so including a federal job guarantee is a way to allow anyone who's willing to take part, who's willing to help us fight this imminent threat, to have a job, to be given a role to play in transitioning our economy off of fossil fuels, towards sustainable energy, and through the transition to make sure that we hold harmless people who are currently working in jobs in the fossil fuel industry, who are in the coal mm. mines, who are working in natural gas and fracking, so that those folks can have uh, the guarantee of an alternative type of employment so that they aren't mm. hurt in the process. There's also the goal of health care, and it seemed to me, as an outsider looking in during the previous midterm elections, that health care was the number one talking point. Would it not have made sense to lead on this particular crusade rather than the green energy and strap green energy to that rather than lead with green energy and then strap healthcare and indeed jobs to that. Yeah, but leave the green energy to whom? We've, we've known that climate change is happening for a number of decades and the private sector has not solved this problem. They have no plan of action to solve this problem. So it has to be a both end. Yes, we have a healthcare crisis. Yes, we have a climate change crisis. Yes, we have, and we could go down the list, uh, affordable housing and other things. And so this is really a holistic approach that addresses a broad range of problems in the U.S. economy, including how to guarantee health care for all of our people, how to ensure that there's an opportunity for employment for everyone, and at the same time, make sure that the planet remains habitable for future generations. Stephanie, one of the uh, things that would be required as part of this Green New Deal would be retrofitting lots of buildings so that they could run on a more sustainable energy. 
Do you think that we have the capacity in the economy right now, the spare labor, the people who are trained to retrofit buildings to do that in the next 10 years without generating significant inflation? It's a great question, and it's exactly the kind of question that sh- we should be focusing our energies on right now, to use a turn of phrase. Um, do we have all of the people ready, equipped, and trained to do that work? I think the answer is probably no. Can we ratchet up very quickly the number of people that can be brought into the labor force uh, through, in part, a federal job guarantee program and also just additional government spending, hiring contractors and engineers and architects? Architects. Um, I think a combination of training, upskilling, and just bringing people into the labor force, we will we have the capacity to do that. And that's it for what you missed this week. If you like the show, make sure to subscribe and rate us at Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts. You can catch our show every weekday from 3:30 to 5 p.m. on Bloomberg TV and from 4 to 5 p.m. on Twitter. Thanks for listening and have a great weekend. The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Carter Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at CarterEconomicForum.com.